1: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show Podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on ninety three point nine KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
2: Well good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Sam Maupin is engineering. James Blind is also engineering and producing. In the Seattle area, Pedro Martez. All right, today on the program, I am looking forward to a conversation with uh, doctors Neil Shenvey and Patrick Sawyer. They are the co-authors of Critical Dilemma, The Rise of Critical Theories and Social Justice Ideology, Implications for the Church and Society. Now, it's no light read, but it is so relevant to where we are today and written from a perspective that a Christian can uh, look at the issues of our day in view of what the Bible teaches and how Uh, we can interpret those things. Anyway, I'm looking forward to that conversation. They'll be joining us later this hour, and we're going to find out if they can stay a little bit longer into the second hour as well, but we'll let you know. Anyway, we'll start out with uh, looking at some of the day's uh, headlines. Attorney General Merrick Garland defended himself and the Department of Justice before a congressional panel on Wednesday morning denying House Republicans allegations that the department has become a politicized and weaponized arm of the federal government. Well, at the start of the hearing, maybe you followed it. uh, House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan, he accused Garland and the department of showing preferential treatment toward Hunter Biden and the president's son or same person. While targeting former President Donald Trump with two federal indictments, Jordan claimed that Garland handpicked David Weiss as the special counselor in the Hunter Biden probe because he knew he will protect Joe Biden. Garland said the Department of Justice is upholding the law equally and fairly to both sides of the political aisle, adding he is not the president's lawyer nor Congress's prosecutor. Our job is to pursue justice without fear or favor. Our job is not to do what is politically convenient. Our job is not to take orders from the president, from Congress or from anyone else about who or what to criminally investigate, as the president himself has said, end quote. It doesn't really pass the belief test if you look at some of those details, but he went on to say we will not be intimidated we will do our job free from outside influence and we will not back down from defending our democracy. Great words if they were only true. And again, I'm questioning um, the hearing was designed to determine whether or not those words hold true. When asked by Representative Mike Johnson whether he personally contacted FBI headquarters regarding Hunter Biden's investigation, uh, Garland said that he could not recollect the answer. His testimony on Capitol Hill came eight days after House Speaker McCarthy formally opened an impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden over his alleged involvement in his, his son's overseas business deal. Representative Matt Gates grilled Garland on Hunter Biden's business dealings. Representative Thomas Massey suggested that Garland was in contempt of Congress for refusing to answer questions regarding the ongoing criminal probe. Into the Biden family and other GOP panel members, they focused on the appointment of Special Counsel Jack Smith in both the Trump federal indictments, which includes forty four charges related to the classified documents case and election interference allegations. Representative uh, Tom McClintock out of California asked Garland about Smith's legal reputation, questioning the attorney general's uh, general rather about Smith's competent and his ability to fairly prosecute Republicans and conservative groups. Garland said Smith is not registered with either political party and acts with integrity into in his legal cases. Panel members also questioned Garland about the fentanyl crisis, the January 6th riot, uh, Capitol riot and the Department of Justice and FBI's targeting of Catholics as violent extremists, among other topics of concern. Well, after insisting for months that Republican Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville was solely responsible for the delay in approving senior military promotions, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer finally folded on Wednesday and began to set up votes on three military officers. The news will likely be seen as a win for Tuberville, since it demonstrates that the Democratic leadership could have made this move months ago. He appears to have been propelled into action by a maneuver from the Alabama senator, Tuberville has planned to bring a motion to the floor on Wednesday to force a vote on General Eric Smith's promotion to U.S. Marine Corps Commandant. That vote was a new tactic in Tuberville's months-long dispute with the Defense Department over its taxpayer-funded abortion policy, since it would have given Schumer the opportunity to vote on Smith's promotion. I have just filed closure on the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Commandant of the. Um, Marine Corps and Army Chief of Staff Schumer said Wednesday, these men should have already been confirmed. They should already be serving in their new positions. The Senate should have uh, uh, should not have to go through procedural hoops just to please one brazen and misguided senator. But this is where we are. So at least for this moment, one of them blinked. Attorney General Garland declined to answer questions in his wide-ranging interview among the issues I mentioned just a moment ago traditional Catholics are violent extremism extremists yes or no he was asked he said he didn't recollect personal contact Mike Lee asked about who the attorney general had talked to regarding his department's investigation into Hunter Biden. And defunding the FBI would be catastrophic, he said during the interview. About Weiss, what changed? Well, the House Judiciary Chairman noted that Weiss at one point wanted to bring charges against Hunter Biden in the D.C. uh, uh, case. But the U.S. attorney in uh, D.C., Matthew Graves, declined to cooperate Garland replied, I'm going to say again that no one had the authority to turn him down. They could refuse to partner with him, appearing to be taken aback. Jordan responded, refuse to partner is turning down. It is turning down. Garland replied, it's not the same under a well-known Justice Department practice. That raised some eyebrows. People don't pay bribes to not get something. Well, Representative Matt Gates he suggested that the Justice Department's decision to close the Trump administration's China initiative which uh, since 2018 had investigated Chinese espionage in the U.S., correlated with millions of dollars from Chinese sources going to the Biden family. Also, agents and assets at Capitol riot don't know. Again, asking whether or not the uh, government was somehow involved in all of that. And finally, um, that uh, that goes right to the White House. Jordan pressed uh, Garland on why the Justice Department prosecutors investigating Hunter Biden allowed the statute of limitations to expire for tax charges. Such charges would have stretched back to the younger Biden's time on the board of Burisma, a Ukrainian energy company that paid $50,000 a month while his father was vice president. Garland punted the answer to Weiss. So not very productive. And finally, before we go to our break, President Joe Biden is expected to announce the creation of the first federal office of gun violence prevention on Friday. Uh, The move first reported by The Washington Post would be a victory for gun control activists who advocate for stricter national gun laws. The Post learned of the plan from four sources. Activists say the new office will help the administration coordinate across the federal government on gun related matters and will help Biden to exert leadership on gun violence prevention raises some questions, what does that mean? What does it look like? But the president will make that announcement on Friday. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We'll continue to work our way through some of the day's news and uh, later this hour, critical dilemma: the rise of critical theories and social justice ideology, implications for the church and society.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back! You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Looking forward to a conversation with Doctors Neil Shenley, uh, Shenvey, and Pat Sawyer, co-authors of Critical Dilemma: The Rise of Critical Theories and Social Justice Ideology Implications for the Church and Society, the book published by Harvest House. Coming up in our next couple of segments. The Biden administration announced Wednesday that it will grant temporary legal status to nearly half a million illegal immigrants from Venezuela so they can pursue work citing political instability in their home country. The Homeland Security Department announced the extension and redesignation for Venezuela for temporary protected status for 18 months, allowing 472,000 migrants who had arrived in the country as of the 31st of July to remain legally and to work. The move was green-lighted by Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Venezuelan migrants have accounted for a large portion of those who've crossed the border from Latin America in recent years. Temporary protected status provides individuals already present in the country with protection from removal when the conditions in their home country prevent a safe return. This will have a significant impact on the economy and employment across the country as well. Well, a group of GOP lawmakers is opposing additional aid for Ukraine's defense as the president of the war-torn country arrived in the U.S. earlier today to plead for more American support. The coalition of 29 Republicans, including six senators and 23 House members, sent a letter to the director of the Office of Management and Budget Thursday, taking the administration to task for providing more than $114 billion in aid to Ukraine since Russia invaded without ensuring proper guardrails to prevent waste and fraud. Well, the vast majority of Congress remains unaware of how much the United States has spent to date in total on their conflict information, which is necessary for Congress rather to prudently exercise its appropriations power, the group wrote. It's difficult to envision a benign explanation for this lack of clarity. Well, the letter sent in response to the president's request for an additional twenty four billion dollars in aid goes on to call the administration's open ended commitment to Ukraine defense absurd and demands greater transparency around the state of the conflict and Ukraine's prospect for reclaiming territory. The United Nations General Assembly convened in New York City this week, and both American President Joe Biden and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky gave impassioned speeches pleading for more aid for Ukraine in its grinding war against the invading Russians. The U.S. has already allocated $113 $113 billion for Ukraine, with the administration requesting an additional $24 billion during a recent spending fight on Capitol Hill. More on that in a moment. But after appearing via video last year, Zelensky spoke in person this year, giving a blistering denunciation of one of the U.N.'s Permanent Security Council members. He labeled Russia's invasion as clearly a genocide, though he warned that Russian aggression poses a threat to the world. Believe it or not, Biden Said a few things that were right. Um, Russia uh, alone bears responsibility for this war. Russia alone has the power to end the war immediately, and it is Russia alone that stands in the way of peace because the Russians' price for peace is Ukraine's cap- uh, capitulation, Ukraine's territory, and Ukraine's children. Russia believes that the world will grow weary and allow it to brutalize Ukraine without consequence. But I think you. Th- but I ask you this. He went on to say. If we abandon the core principles of the U.N. charter to appease an aggressor, can any member state in this body feel confident that they are protected? If we allow Ukraine to be carved up, is this independence of any nation secure? I'd respectfully suggest the answer is no. We have to stand up to this naked aggression today and deter other would-be aggressors tomorrow. But there's the ugly truth. Biden's weakness was provocative To be sure, that's not news. Uh, Douglas Andrew, who's a columnist, titled an analysis with uh, with that assessment back in May of last year. And uh, it's been said earlier as well. If Joe Biden had not assumed the presidency in uh, January of 21, Russian strongman Vladimir Putin would not have invaded Ukraine in February of 22. No one else views Biden as strong either. Certainly not China, which flew more than 150 military planes toward Taiwan on Monday. So how much aid for Ukraine is too much? Well, the question has roiled the American political arena for a year and a half. Uh, We won't go into all the twists and turns in that debate, other than to say that Republicans have uncharacteristically soured on such aid in large measure because it smells like swamp establishment and no one trusts Biden to manage it well. To put it mildly, his family ties to and thoroughly corrupt Ukraine are hugely problematic and come with national security consequences. Instead, um, they're focusing on the dollars being spent. Again, the situation seems untenable to those in decision-making positions on how to move forward. The Biden administration is setting a booby trap in case a Republican wins the presidency in 2024. On Friday, the White House unveiled a proposed rule that would make it even harder than it um, In the past, for an incoming Republican president to wrestle control of the left-leaning federal bureaucracy and actually implement the conservative policies promised to voters— Of the 2.2 million federal civil workers, only 4,000 are presidential appointees. The rest stay in their jobs for one administration to the next, protected by rules that make it nearly impossible to discipline or replace them. They overwhelmingly favor the left, a staggering 95 percent of unionized federal employees who donate to political candidates give to Democrats, according to Open Secrets, only a tiny 5 percent. Support Republicans. Some federal workers in high positions low walk or even derail a Republican president's agenda and get away with it. Why bother to vote if the left leaning deep state stays in charge no matter who wins the presidency? Well, GOP candidates uh, Donald Trump, Vivek Ramaswamy, and Ron DeSantis are vowing to conquer this obstructionism. Everett Kelly, union president of the American Federation of Government Employees, claims GOP contenders want to politicize routine government work. Nonsense. We are not talking about mail carriers. It's time to make lawyers, PhDs and other top level career bureaucrats implement the president's agenda. And not their own, they argue. Well, after Trump won in 2016, they went to town neutralizing him on almost every policy front, explains James Shirk, special assistant to the White House Domestic Policy Council under Trump. Career lawyer in the Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division flat out refused to challenge Yale University's discrimination against Asian-American applicants. Trump had to recruit lawyers from other divisions. After Joe Biden became president, the DOJ dropped the case. But the same career lawyers who refused to sue Yale made the losing argument in support of affirmative action before the U.S. Supreme Court. Career health officials like Dr. Deborah Burks circumvented Trump's instructions to moderate... Um, uh, COVID lockdowns, Environmental Protection Agency lawyer pursued cases against fossil fuel producers and withheld the information from Trump appointees. Trump mandated in a 2020 executive order that new federal buildings be designed to please the public, uh, which re- prefers classical design. Instead, general uh, special um, administration architects chose modern designs they liked. Trump mentioned as an example, the San Francisco federal building, the ugliest edifice in the city. Well, it goes on from there. Uh, suggesting that unless um, there is a um, a way for the executive and others to exercise the authority they have been given by being duly elected, this essentially ties the hands and booby traps whatever uh, ever, uh, administration ends up occupying the Oval Office and wielding, at least, paper power. Well, Donald Trump says no to the GOP debate and planning a trip to Detroit to win auto workers support instead. Rather than participate in the second debate next week, the former president said he's going to Detroit. And while other Republican presidential contenders gather in Simi Valley, California, where the debate will be held, Trump will head to the Motor City. According to Politico, some Biden allies fear Trump is outmaneuvering them on the strike with uh, his announced travel. Biden, who has called himself the most pro-union president in history, won the United Auto Workers endorsement endorsement rather in 2020. But the union, which typically endorses Democrats, hasn't endorsed the president yet. UAW President Sean Fain said the union needs to see more from Biden before making any endorsement decision. By the way, Republican candidates in competitive House and Senate races who align themselves with the former president and his uh, claims that he won the 2020 election could face considerable voter backlash on Election Day. That's according to a new poll from the WPA Intelligence Of respondents who said they are undecided on the generic congressional ballot, 51 percent said they would be less likely to support a candidate who believes the 2020 election was stolen from Trump. Just 12 percent said that they would uh, be more likely to support a candidate who holds such beliefs. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, a conversation with Doctors Neil Shenvey and Patrick Sawyer, co-authors of Critical Dilemma. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show Podcast is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. I'm Georgine Rice. Well in the last several years, critical theories have invaded government, education, churches, and even homes. The confusion, division, new semantics, and outright cultural upheaval are baffling to those who don't know what's behind these worldviews. Well, according to authors Neil Shenvey and Pat Sawyer, both PhDs, every Christian, whether liberal or conservative, is being tugged by the swift ideological current of their surroundings. We may not even notice we are adrift. They go on to warn, don't allow yourself to get slowly dug into apostasy and deconstruction. Well, in their book, Critical Dilemma, The Rise of Critical Theories and Social Justice Ideology, Implications for the Church and Society, the authors connect the dots between this radical ideology and societal decay, explaining where uh, where it started, how it's gained a foothold in culture, and defining exactly what it is. They write, to pretend that critical race theory or critical theory is harmless Neutral endeavor is wildly naive. CRT will hurt, not help, the church pursue uh, racial unity. Well, my guest, uh, Dr. Neil Shenvey, is an AB in chemistry from Princeton and a PhD in theoretical chemistry from UC Berkeley. He is the author of Why Believe: A Reasoned Approach to Christianity and is widely um, recognized for his writing on critical theory, which can be found in journals like um, Icon and the Journal for Christian Legal Thought. Pat Sawyer has a B.A. in psychology from UNC Chapel Hill, an M.A. in communication studies from UNC Greensboro, and a Ph.D. in educational studies and cultural studies. From UNC Greensboro and is published in the Academy and various popular outlets. They join us today to talk about what I consider a very important book for our time Critical Dilemma, The Rise of Critical Theory and Social Justice Theology Implications for, oh, for um, Church and Society. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you for being here.
2: Yeah. You know, this uh, is such an overwhelming subject. I appreciate that you have put in a volume... Um, the answers to the questions that we have, you know, critical theory as opposed to critical race theory, it's difficult to keep it all straight and to understand not only what it means, but how it's being applied. Well, in your book, Critical Dilemma, you explain the current woke crisis. You uncover the origins of critical theory and you clarify the interconnectedness between the core tenets. Now, what are the ideas at the heart of the woke movement and why are they so dangerous?
3: In our book, we identify four core ideas at the heart of wokeness, or well, critical social theory. and Those are the social binary, the idea that society is divided into oppressor and oppressed groups along lines of race, class, gender, sexuality, and physical ability, and so forth. Then, second, well, what makes one group oppressed? And the answer is hegemonic power. That's the second idea. So hegemonic power means the power of the dominant group, whether it's whites or men or heterosexuals, to impose their values on culture. That's what oppression is when people impose their values on culture, and the rest of us take it for granted as normal or neutral. The third idea is lived experience the idea that we can really know the truth about social reality only through our lived experience of oppression, and it often is a part of being an oppressed group. So if I'm a woman, I understand sexism. If I'm a person of color, I really understand racism, and that's how we gain access to the reality of our social oppression. Then finally, the goal of critical social theories is social justice. That's idea number four. When they talk about social justice, they're referring to breaking down the systems and structures that produce the social binary and social oppression. Those four ideas, the social binary, uh, hegemonic power, lived experience, and social justice are at the root of all these woke movements we see in society
2: now is there any redemption in you know we come to this understanding and then we strive toward redemption and resolution is there ever the possibility under this critical theory any resolution is there any uh, way that the oppressor for example as as defined in the theory uh, can be absolved or is this just a a way to manipulate um that that's never really resolved
4: georgine that's a, that's a great question Part of the problem with critical social theory and with what woke ideology is requiring of people is that the the ability to actually come to some type of redemptive final destination is very elusive. For those who are categorized in the oppressed category, woke ideology would say that your life is about a continued effort to try to absolve yourself from your oppressor status. And that is ongoing. You've got to continue to signal that with your life, continue to divest of your privilege, continue to try to be on the right side of history. And unlike the Christian faith, which offers you know absolutely categorical redemption, in the context of the woke movement, again, it's it's very elusive and not something that ultimately over time will ever be fully attained
2: yeah there's there's no absolution now you write that critical theories are about more than race the incorporation of gender sexual orientation class and other factors in crt's analysis of racism is the theme that runs throughout the last three decades of crt scholarship often referred to as intersectionality it can be um, definitionally amorphous at times leaving defect- detectors confused uh, can you explain that? Because I, th- I think many of us are confused and it doesn't seem like there's a solid line that you can come to where you have that aha moment and, and fully comprehend where, where the lines are drawn.
3: Yeah, so critical theory is this broad umbrella term that encompasses many different critical social mm-hmm. theories, including critical race theory, queer theory, critical pedagogy, intersectional feminism and a host of other critical social theories. So you have this umbrella category and these subcategories. And one thing that we've seen with Christians is that they'll hear a term like critical race theory, and they'll say, oh, okay, this is just going to provide some insights for us into race alone. We're going to apply these tools and and, and methods just to look at how uh, racial groups have subordinated, have been subordinated throughout (coughs) history. We're not going to apply it to gender or sexuality. That would go against our Christian worldview. The problem is that from the earliest days of critical race theory, its very founders insisted that you cannot separate Mm -hmm. race and class, and gender, and sexuality. So Kimberly Crenshaw coined the term intersectionality. She's one of the founders of CRT, Derrick Bell, the godfather of CRT. Both of them were emphatic that as critical race theorists, we must dismantle not just the white supremacist culture we live in, but also the patriarchy, and also heterosexism. And so over the last, say, 20 or 30 years, all these various disciplines like critical race theory and queer theory and intersectional feminism they've actually connected with each other and cross-pollinated under this intersectional framework. So today, all of these critical social theories work together to undo all these various forms of oppression.
4: And, Georgine, it's important to also recognize that anti-racism, ideology and perspective, and then critical social justice, these two kind of knowledge areas have become more pronounced over the last 5, 10, 15 years and they are downstream from critical social theory. So in both those models of thinking in terms of how to think about society and approach society, it's the same with critical social theory. You cannot push back on racism alone. These oppressions are interlocking, and if you're going to be authentic about pushing back against racism, for instance, if you're truly going to be an anti-racist, then that means you have to adopt the perspective and the agenda of the gay community and oppression that is happening in that community in any kind of context relative to post-colonialism where imperialism and co- you know, colonization is taking place in terms of how that's manifested in society at in, in local levels with certain groups. All of that has to be onboarded if you're going to be legitimately concerned about any one of these impressions, oppressions, you've got to adopt them all.
2: Mm. We're talking this afternoon about a book that I would highly recommend, uh, that you take some serious time to read, Critical Dilemma, The Rise of Critical Theories and Social Justice Ideology, Implications for the Church and Society. We're going to take a break here in just a moment, but we'll continue our conversation with doctors Neil Shenvey and Pat Sawyer. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, continuing my conversation with the co-authors of Critical Dilemma, The Rise of Critical Theories and Social Justice Ideology, Implications for the Church and Society, Drs. Neil Shenvey and Dr. Pat Sawyer. Uh, You write that anyone delving into academic literature will find themselves swimming in an ocean of buzzwords. And what are some of these and why do semantics matter in all of this?
3: If you look at the literature, you'll find words that are very common today, intersectionality, equity, social justice, uh, heterosexism, white privilege, white fragility. And these actually words have been around for maybe decades, but they've only recently entered common parlance. And you hear them on the radio, you hear them in the locker room, you hear them at work. But it's important to understand the ideas behind them, because Christians can often use these words and just assume they're they're just hip, they're trendy, Mm -hmm. they sound good. But they actually have a very important and historical meaning. So when you use them, you have to understand what you're saying. And take an example like privilege. You hear things like, well, privilege, there's white privilege, there's male privilege, different forms of privilege. And you might think, well, that just means that there's some kind of benefit that accrues to certain people because of who they are. And that's partially true. And then you might think, well, well, isn't privilege a real thing? And shouldn't we work to extend privilege to all people? Isn't the problem that privilege is only accorded to certain groups? We want all people in the U.S. to have equal privilege. Well, that's true, but it's not what privilege means in the literature. So in the literature, society is divided into groups with privilege and those who are oppressed. So privilege is the flip side of oppression. So when you say that whites have white privilege, what you mean is whites have white privilege by virtue of oppressing non-whites. So that's why the term can be very elusive and tricky, and we should be very hesitant to use those terms. In our book, we go through many of those words Mm -hmm. and phrases to explain what they mean and where they come from.
2: You refer to the influence of critical theories as a society-wide problem. Um, how so? Again, the, the language, we're hearing it more often. How how widely is it actually infiltrating policy and um, how people are actually interacting with one another?
4: Well, it's interesting, Georgine, that there has been an onslaught of, you know, DEI training, for instance. this The idea that we're going to think about diversity equity inclusion and we're going to think about those terms as they're framed by critical social theory and so we're seeing those kinds of programs in all types of corporate environments political environments educational environments and those those training sessions that are being offered are all connected to critical social theory we're also seeing that the church is beginning to adopt certain kinds of ideas and perspectives that are really downstream from these ideas one of the things that alarmed neil and i and it's partly the impetus of why we wrote this book is that we began to see in the professing church and the professing evangelical church a focus on ethnic identity as the primary or at least functioning uh, primary identity marker for certain groups and we know as christians that our identity in christ must be what is most preeminent and that theoretically is certainly uh, still, you know, stated by most people that would attend an evangelical church. But we begin to see functionally that people were beginning to think of their social location or their ethnic location as the primary understanding in terms of how they would work out their identity within the church and within society. And that kind of thing is is death in terms of Christian unity. It will thwart it entirely. And And that is, you know, One of the things that is having such a strong effect on the church, and then we also see that in society, Uh, you know, identity politics has never been more popular than they have over the last three to five years in in my memory, in terms of of my thinking about politics and cancel culture, for instance, comes along with that, that that it's not it's no longer the quality of the idea it's the quality of the identity of the person offering the idea that makes the idea something that we might would or choose or believe or trust and in all of that swimming in our society and culture is part and parcel to the push and the penetration that critical social theory is having Mm
2: -hmm. what are some of the most notable of the 15 tenets of critical race theory
3: Yeah, there are a lot. We tried to organize them into sort of four main ideas. Again, the four main ideas are central tenets of critical race theory. So first and most prominent tenet is the idea that racism is normal, permanent and pervasive, that racism is all over society. And it's it's, it's, it's everywhere. Wherever you go, it's ubiquitous. It's always affecting your life. You're a person of color. You're always being oppressed by racism. Now, people might hear that central tenet and think, well, that doesn't make any sense. You know, I'm a person of color and I don't feel like I'm daily oppressed. Well, that gets into the second tenet of critical race theory, which is the idea that racism is hidden beneath disguises like colorblindness, equality, even civil rights theory. These are actually masks to disguise the way that racism actually functions today. So you know, organizations or corporations or governments might claim to value equality and meritocracy and colorblindness, but really those policies that are billed as colorblind are actually reinforcing the racial status quo. It's a form of racism. The second idea. The third idea is, again, lived experience. It's obviously related to critical theory as central tenets. So critical race theory would say that the, 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 it's crucial to have the lived experience of racism in order to really understand racism. And because of that, We should defer to the experiential knowledge of people of color, uh, whether they're black or Asian or Hispanic, that only they can truly grasp the, the depth of racism in their society. And then finally, intersectionality is the fourth central idea of critical race theory, which just states that you can't merely attack racism without also attacking sexism, heterosexism, classism, ableism, and a host of other oppressions. That these systems and structures all have to be dismantled at the same time, and you cannot be truly anti racist. But you're also, in the words of Ibrahim Kendi, you also have to be anti-sexist, anti-homo, uh, anti-homophobic, you can't be transphobic, you can't be classist. All of these oppressions stand or fall together.
2: This is wholly incompatible with a Christian worldview, is it not?
4: It is. It is. And, and we're not making too much of it by calling it a worldview, because critical social theory answers questions around epistemology, how we know what is true? It answers questions around ontology, what it means to be a human being. It answers questions around phenomenology, our day to day lived experience, our day to day lived existence. All these questions are answered by critical social theory. And because these questions are so broad and so deep, critical social theory operates. Uh, as as a lens for people to judge and understand the world again critical theory what is critical theory critical theory is a is an approach to social analysis that is centralizing power who has it who doesn't have it and why and when we think of society from those from that angle and then it also desires to emancipate and empower those who have been left out of the status quo Again, according to the pre commitments and, and beliefs and ideas of the ideology of critical social theory. So, all of that, Georgine,
2: it, what it does,
4: it smacks of a worldview, of a meta narrative. It's broad and robust. Now, it's possible to pick your spots, but again, that's working against the knowledge area. The knowledge area wants to take over more and more jurisdiction of one's thinking, and therefore it lands as a worldview.
2: You include a chapter on queer theory, and my guess is most of our listeners would never think that they have an interest in queer theory or that it's relevant to them in any way. But what does it have to do with gender studies and feminism? And I think it's important that we understand it because it's permeating the culture and certainly for your sons and daughters in university and graduate school uh, are being steeped in all of this. What is queer queer theory and, and why is it important that we understand it? What does it have to do with the gender and feminism?
3: Right. Well, I only wish it were relegated to graduate school, right? If they're only showing up Mm -hmm. in graduate level programs among adults, it's not the case. So in 2021, uh, the program Blues Clues, which is targeted at Mm. preschool kids, it's a cartoon program. Well, for Pride Month of 2021, they had a uh, YouTube video. that was a drag queen singing a song about Pride Month for the tune of the Ansco Marching, and it included lyrics like uh, about uh, asexual, ace, bi, and pan grown-ups you see love each other so proudly. They all go marching the the, the Pride Parade. Well, ace, bi, and pan refers to asexual, bisexual, and pansexual adults. And they had a cartoon beaver with double mastectomy scars where her breasts had been removed in the cartoon. And this is being watched by preschoolers who don't even know their shapes and their letters yet. So this is just one of the many poisonous fruits of queer theory. It was a, a field that developed in the early 90s and late 90s by people like Judith Butler. And it focuses on dismantling the gender binary and allowing people to express themselves however they feel like, whether male or female or some other gender. So today, when you hear people talking about how there's there's no gender binary, there are actually 100 genders, you can be gender fluid, you can be pansexual, all those ideas can be traced back to the academic literature from about 30 years ago. And that's why it's so important for Christians to not assume that these ideas are just being taught in some crazy progressive graduate school to 30-year-olds. That is just not the case. All of the things you see in our culture, in media, in music, in entertainment, in sports, in government, they can all be traced back to the ideas around sexuality and gender. It traces back to this one of queer theory.
2: Mm. Well, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. Again, we're talking about what I consider to be a very significant book Critical Dilemma The Rise of Critical Theories and Social Justice Ideology Implications for the Church and Society, published by Harvest House. News and traffic up next.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast, it is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon, and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. We're continuing a conversation I began in the first hour on the book, Critical Dilemma, The Rise of Critical Theories and Social Justice Ideology, Implications for the Church and Society. The authors connect the dots between this radical ideology and societal decay. They explain where it started, how it was gained, and how it's gained a foothold in culture and defining exactly what it is. They write that to pretend that critical race theory is harmless, neutral endeavor is widely naive. CRT will hurt, not help the church's pursuit of radical uh, unity. Um, this is such an important book for us right now, and I think it helps to put into perspective why it's important. I think many of us would just simply like to look away and hope that it doesn't have an impact uh, in our uh, life, in our church, in our the lives of our children. And just before the break, I think one of you was talking about uh, a children's program in which the the language and the imagery was uh, inculcated in, into that, reaching preschool and, and very young children. So this is not something so obscure and distant that it isn't impacting the whole of culture.
3: That's right. It's really everywhere. You, know, you can see it from you know, pre-K, like the Blue's Clues program, up through middle school, high school, college, uh, and in you know, the workplace, all these DEI initiatives throughout the corporate world. It really is suffusing our society in various ways. And you'd like to hope, well, let's go away. But I think we can't be that naive. We have to actually take steps to address it and equip Christians to recognize it and then reject its foundational
4: ideas.
2: Now, describe and for our—oh, please go ahead.
4: And Georgine, I was just going to say that some of what critical social theory and most of it is is prioritizing are things that are timeless. Issues around sexism or racism or prejudice or oppression, these things have, have plagued our society uh, it's plagued the entire planet But particularly U.S. society These concerns are real concerns and, and, and that's part of the seduction When it comes to critical social theory Because Christians, for instance Are very concerned about mm-hmm. being uh, racist They don't want to be racist They want to push back against racism Any genuine bigotry that's been done To the gay community for instance, Christians are against that kind of bigotry They don't, they want you know, Christians are called to love all people and, and since these topics are you know, rooted in our culture and society, and, and since critical social theory is making such a hard push in defining the terms around these concerns, Christians need to be equipped to not only understand what critical social theory is trying to do, but then also have Christian responses and Christian answers to these concerns. And our, our book is more than just an analysis of critical social theory. We all also offer some ways forward in terms of, for instance, racial healing and racial unity and how the church can be in the vanguard of that relative to society.
2: Now, for the sake of listeners who don't have a copy of your volume in their hands, can you sort of uh, outline how it's laid out? You have uh, three different parts and um, it's a systematic review of of all of this. But as you pointed out, I appreciate that you don't just leave us with a, a knowledge of what's happening, but you also encourage us to consider how to how to respond in a constructive way. Outline how the book is structured.
3: So the first section, as you said, is about understanding critical social theory. So what are these ideas? What's the difference between, say, critical theory and critical race theory and queer theory? Where do these ideas come from? We trace them back to Karl Marx and the Frankfurt School and then later thinkers like Kimberly Crenshaw, Judith Butler, Michel Foucault. We go through the core ideas at the heart of critical theory, critical race theory and queer theory. Then we even spend a chapter just describing the positive insights that some critical race theorists and critical social theorists have. It's not completely nothing but falsehood and poison. If it were, people would just ignore it. The very seduction of these theories is that they get some ideas right and they suck you in that way. So when want to warn Christians, hey, there's some actual truth there, but be very careful in how you interpret it. The first section is all that understanding. The second section then turns to critique. We critique these ideas very harshly from a biblical standpoint, and say, let's compare these claims to the claims of the Bible. What does God say about things like race and sex and gender? Comparing the ideas, say, of queer theory to the idea that God ordained male and female as real, eternal categories that are good for us—they're His design; they're not oppressive. So we again, we hold up these critical theories to the scrutiny of the Bible, and then say, and they find we find that they're completely incompatible. And then the final section is engaging. We ask, what can we do now as Christians? How can we uh, push back, stem the tide of critical social theory, both in the culture and in the church? And uh, we, we give some uh, slogans that are very common that, that are really ways that will devastate your church. So ideas like, you know, all people of color are oppressed. We say, well, what do you mean by oppression? Is that really true? Do you, do you have to walk around as a white person on eggshells, feeling you're always racist, you're always at fault? We say, well, no, that's not true. Uh, ideas like uh, the gender binary is oppressive. That's that's not true. That gender binary is God-ordained. So, and we also explain why are these critical social theories so attractive to many people? And we give many reasons, but one is, I think, at the, in the end of the day, they're a way to feel good about yourself. They're a way to justify yourself. Because as human beings, we, we all know there's something wrong with us. Even non-Christians feel the pressure of God's law on our hearts and they want some way to say, we're actually we're fine, we're okay, we're justified, we're righteous. So critical theory gives you a way to feel like you're not a bigot, you're loving, you're compassionate, you're on the right side of history. And so we, we point out how we can engage people, especially non-Christian, and show them that actually you can't cleanse yourself. The only real healing and restoration that you can find is through the free gift of Jesus Christ that God offered us.
2: One of the challenging notions that we find in this critical um, theory is the notion that objective truth exists when it comes to merit, morality, law, politics. Um, It sort of dismisses the, the notion of objective truth, which, of course, is central to Christianity.
4: Yeah, that is a good point, Georgine. We would mention that while critical social theory certainly problematizes and challenges Notions of neutrality and objectivity And certainly universal truth Or absolute truth That that is the case, that is part of the literature But that doesn't mean that a critical Social theorist, you know, rejects Anything that would smack Of of truth, for instance A critical social theorist Wants their Brain surgeon to know what they're doing And they would (laughs) agree that there's a right way To do brain surgery and there's a wrong way They would recognize that if you jump off this You know, uh, 10 story building, gravity is going to take over and you're going to hit the ground. But what critical social theorists are doing is that they are challenging the idea of neutrality and objectivity from the standpoint that they believe and the literature states and underscores that those kinds of terms have been weaponized to then reify the status quo. Even the notion of egalitarianism, that seems like a positive thing for society. Mm -hmm. But critical social theorists would make the point that often the way egalitarianism is contextualized in society, it just continues to perpetuate those who are already in power. And so therefore, this pristine kind of uh, neutral and positive view of egalitarianism is really wrong. It really has kind of an undercurrent of something pernicious, and insidious because those who have been marginalized and disenfranchised don't play by the same rules as those who are in power. So this notion of egalitarianism is, is kind of mythic. And and we you know we unpack that in our book and we we are nuanced. We talk about how there may be some truth to the weaponization of some of these terms, but it doesn't follow that there's not any truth to the objectivity and neutrality of certain uh, perspectives that are dominant in society. And so we try to to break that down and give our readers a good view to how to
2: understand that. Yes, yes. Once again, we need to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. Again, the book that we're talking about today, Critical Dilemma, back in a moment with more.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You are listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Doctors Neil Shenvey and Doctor Pat Sawyer. The book "Critical Dilemma," a must-read to understand the times and to respond in a way that uh, reflects a biblical worldview. Toward the end of the book, you have a, a, a segment uh, moving forward. How do we move forward? I think one of the first answers to that question might be to become better informed to understand the times. But what do you suggest we do in order to move forward as believers? Uh, in this very challenging age.
3: Right. So I agree that the first step is understanding. That's why we wrote what we did. The first section is understanding. You have to understand what's going on. I gave a talk years ago to a group of college students and one of the professors in the audience heard all these ideas. And when he uh, finished the talk, he came to me and said, you know, this is everywhere. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. We really have to inform Christians and equip them to recognize ideas to know why they're false, and then to hold them up to the scrutiny of the Bible. That's where all of this engagement starts. But then moving forward as a church, we think the Bible has a better answer, the true answer to problems of racism, sexism, social injustice. You know, These things are real. Uh, you know, take abortion. Abortion is a systemic injustice. It's absolutely everywhere. It's embedded in the law. And so it's fine for Christians, and it's good for Christians to say there is real injustice, there is real evil out there, we want to fight it, and yet to, to know where to draw the lines around these ideas and say these are not the way. And one of the things we recommend in the book is dialogue, uh, within the church especially. We need to talk to each other, uh, understand that you know certain ideas are off the table because they're unbiblical, but then it's great to have these bonds built over a shared fellowship in the church and a shared unity in the faith. And hopefully, especially across racial lines, we want to acknowledge things that, like, racism does exist. It's It still is a problem today that many people of color and many whites face actual racism. And then to come together and say, but we're brothers and sisters here. We love each other in Christ's name, and we're going to work for unity. And that's going to move the church forward and even be a witness to the world. In John's Gospel, Jesus talks about how the world will know that we're his We're his disciples because of the love we have for one another. So we urge the Christians, we put the gospel at the very center of everything we do, then find unity in that rather than finding unity in political alliances or in these theories about oppression.
2: I appreciate that you make the point that um, our true calling as ambassadors for the gospel, we're not just culture warriors, but we are called to be ambassadors to remember our, our calling and the place that God has assigned for us.
4: Yeah, that's right. We we don't lose sight of the fact, Georgine, that the gospel has to be central, that the gospel is everything. One of the things that critical social theory wants to prioritize is temporal deliverance, you know, deliverance from oppressive conditions in time and space. And while Christians are absolutely concerned about biblical justice, absolutely concerned about temporal conditions, we see in Matthew 25 that true salvation is often worked out in terms of us being of benefit to those who are under-resourced and who are in need. However, we cannot let that supplant the priority of the gospel and the priority of our spiritual needs, not only those that are connected to the church, but in terms of all of society. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? And our book does continue to bring us back to that point that we must keep the gospel central and we must keep people's spiritual condition in view and that we must be ambassadors for Christ in that regard.
2: Well, I appreciate so much you're making this book available. I know that I wrestle with understanding all of the things that something comes up and trying to understand what does that mean exactly and uh you know if you're not an academic it can be very challenging to keep up and then to recognize what uh, young people are being taught, and to be able to talk with them about it in a way that um, is correct, but also uh, an opportunity to share a biblical worldview on, on these subjects. So I thank you for the book. Um, who To whom was it intended? For people like me? for uh, For <laughs> academics? Who is it written for?
3: You know, it's for everyone. We want it to be a scholarly book. It contains lots and lots of footnotes. We wanted to, to really hear from critical theorists themselves to quote them verbatim. So we're not just interpreting them. We're saying, here's what they say for themselves, let them speak. Mm-hmm. But we also wrote it to everybody. We want we understand that the problem is society-wide. It's not just relegated to academia, to people with PhDs. So we, you know, we have the, the folks full of figures and diagrams and illustrations and examples and pop culture references. So it's really written to everyone. I think it's especially relevant to both college students and to parents of you know teenage kids and college students who are wrestling with these ideas, you have a lot of fiery college students who are out there that are on fire for things like social justice and, and tr- social transformation. And if you're struggling to relate to your kids that way, or if you're a college student struggling to understand these ideas that are being taught to you by your college professors, this is a book that's definitely for you. It's for, so it's for parents, students, it's for pastors who equip their congregations to understand these ideas and to combat them biblically. It's for basically everyone. And we're actually really delighted that we received a number of endorsements, including four different ones from people who are either atheist or secular thinkers, uh, people like Peter Gozian and Thomas Chatterton Williams, because they understand that even as non-Christians that they are rest- swimming in these waters, too. They also are worried about wokeness, and even though they don't share our faith commitments, they realize this is a very helpful book, even for them, So even for non-Christians. <laughs> I can benefit from this book.
2: Yeah. Well, again, I thank you for the the effort to write it and to make it available to the rest of us. Again, Dr. Neil Shenvey and uh, Dr. Pat Sawyer, the book Critical Dilemma, The Rise of Critical Theories and Social Justice Ideology Implications for the Church and Society. Thank you both. I really appreciate your joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. It's
4: been an honor to be with you.
2: God bless. Bye-bye. All right. We've got uh, news and... No, we don't. We've got... uh, what do we got coming up? We got a couple of segments coming up. So, uh, so stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Federal Reserve announced another pause on interest rate hikes. Uh, Wall Street Journal reports that the Federal Reserve officials voted to hold interest rates steady at a 22-year high and signaled they were prepared to raise rates once more this year to combat inflation. With economic activity stronger than anticipated, most officials, they also expected that they would need to keep interest rates near their current level through next year. According to projections released on Wednesday, at the conclusion of their two-day policy meeting, well, we'll see what actually happens. President Biden met with Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu to ease tensions between the two nations. The president uh, met on Wednesday on the sidelines of the United, States, uh, United Nations General Assembly, the first time the two leaders have met since Netanyahu regained power. Late last year, and established what is widely viewed as the most right-wing, ultra-nationalist and religiously conservative government in Israel's recent history. The meeting focused on U.S.-led efforts to achieve a deal to normalize relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia, according to um, uh, those present. Uh, it would be a significant foreign policy achievement for the administration and could reshape the Middle East. President Zelensky addressed the U.N. calling for the august body to stop the war. The president has accused the U.N. of being incapable of preventing aggressors invading other countries as he accused Russia of committing criminal and unprovoked aggression. Coming face to face with Vladimir Putin's ambassador in the U.N. for the first time since his country was invaded, Mr. Zelensky told a special meeting of the U.N. Security Council that the aggression violated both the norms of war and the U.N. charter itself. And he made an impassioned call to reform the the General Assembly and Security Council to end Russia's war on his country. Meanwhile, Kathy Hochul introduced voting legislation and is instantly sued by the GOP. The new law approved by the governor uh, Wednesday will allow New York voters to cast ballots by mail instead of in person for the 2024 elections. But the ink wasn't even dry when Republican bigwigs sued to block it from taking effect. The law will have the uh, State Board of Elections create a program giving all registered voters the opportunity to mail ballots up to 10 days prior to the election. And election officials will then provide mail ballots with postage paid return envelopes. But GOP elected officials quickly filed a lawsuit trying to quash the measure, saying it leaves elections vulnerable to fraud and doesn't pass constitutional muster. While well, the Illinois abortion referral law is being challenged in court after being stalled for six years, I'm referring to Schroeder versus Trato Jr. challenges the 28 rather 2016 amendment to the Illinois Healthcare Right to uh, Right of Conscience Act which attempts to force medical and counseling personnel to promote abortion regardless of their ethical or moral views. The offending law, known as Senate Bill 1564, requires those who conscientiously object to involvement in abortion to adopt policies that provide women who ask for abortions with a list of providers that reasonably believe may offer them. There is no requirement for abortion vendors to provide life-affirming resources or referrals, however. In 2017, a federal court issued a statewide preliminary injunction to halt enforcement of the law, which uh, has stood for six years. The case now proceeds to a bench trial before United States District Court Judge Ian Johnston. President Biden is helping Iran fund terrorism while paving the way toward nuclear weapon. In the latest phase of an unacknowledged and unlawful nuclear deal between the United States and Iran, President Joe Biden formally approved giving the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism another six billion dollars, ostensibly for the release of five Americans held hostage in Tehran, but in bypassing Congress to avoid a political fight. He knows he'd lose. Biden is not uh, not only guaranteeing more hostage taking of American citizens; he's also subsidizing Iran's terrorism, military support for Russia, nuclear weapons capabilities, and repression of Iranian women. In May, a top White House official visited Oman to pass a, a message to Tehran. Washington wants to broker a nuclear deal in secret. Biden would lift sanctions restrictions on Iranians' uh, funds held outside its borders, and in an exchange. Iran would slow its steady march toward a nuclear weapons threshold. Biden only uh, his only demand don't move across the nuclear threshold by producing weapons grade uranium and release five American citizens held hostage in Iran. A bit of the backstory. A Texas land developer has established a sprawling settlement north of Houston where thousands of illegal immigrants are believed to be uh, settled raising concerns among experts and elected officials that the development 400 miles in the interior of the United States could become a strategic asset for cartels. Located in Liberty County, that's in Texas, near the small town of Plum Grove, the Colony Ridge development is a sprawling community that is now over 60 square miles and nearly the size of the nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Its population is estimated to be anywhere from 50 to 75,000 And it's growing rapidly thanks to a marketing plan targeted at Texas Hispanic population. Herding cats in the House, the tentative deal House Speaker Kevin McCarthy brokered over the weekend between Republican factions in order to get a stopgap spending bill passed, collapsed on Tuesday. Members of the Freedom Caucus hammered their moderate Republican colleagues for being more willing to work with Democrats to avoid a government shutdown than work with them. Florida Representative Byron Donalds explained a lot of my colleagues, Freedom Caucus members, et cetera, need to be very concerned about the fact that we do have some Republican members who are willing to sign on to a clean, continuing resolution with the Democrats and basically eliminates uh, eliminates out leveraging to do anything. Democrats who have almost always had the political advantage when it comes to government shutdowns uh, events are eyeing another victory if McCarthy can't get Republicans to um, uh, come together and pass a resolution that puts the pressure onto the Democrat-controlled Senate to respond. By the way, U.S. Uh, national debt surpassed $33 trillion on Monday. Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville has uh, struck uh, stuck to his guns over his objection to the Biden administration's decision to use taxpayer dollars, To ensure military members access to abortion for months, Tuberville has refused to give his uh, vote to grant unanimous approval to an officer nominations, resulting in a backlog of several hundred officer promotions. The Democrats and the administration claim threatens military readiness. Tuberville has repeatedly pointed out that the Biden administration could rescind its abortion policy or Senate leader Chuck Schumer could schedule votes for each individual officer con- uh, confirmation. With the administration and Democrats unwilling to consider either of those two options, he's seeking to force the confirmation vote for Marine Corp- uh, Corporal. Commandant Nominee General Eric Smith, who was nominated by Joe Biden back in May and has been serving as the acting Commandant after General David Berger stepped down in July. Tuberville is proving that he is more concerned with military readiness than are his political counterparts. The Ninth Circuit Court upheld religious liberty in a somewhat surprising ruling. Given its history, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that uh, San Jose Unified School District in California violated the First Amendment freedom of religious uh, rights of students in 2019 when it banned the club Fellowship of Christian Athletes from schools. In a 9-2 vote, the court found any club or group unavoidably discriminates by simply having uh, policies. Uh, San Jose School District enacted its ban against the FCA because the FCA requires its members to sign a statement of faith in which they pledge to uphold the biblical tenets on sexuality. Louisiana Republican Senator John Kennedy caused quite a stir when he read excerpts from several sexually explicit books found in school libraries across the country that parents have been objecting to. A video clip of Kennedy reading from one of the books in question, Gender Queer, written by transgender activist Mea Khababi, went viral due to its explicitness. Khababi is a a woman who identifies as non-binary and who uses the non-existent pronouns E, M, and air. Uh, He, she, whatever, was asked about whether she, she, he, whatever, uh, believed her book was appropriate for children, and the answer says it all. I don't recommend this book for kids. Even the author thinks it's inappropriate. Dr. Fauci cashed in on the pandemic. Dr. Fauci retired from heading the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases last year. An open records request revealed that he and his wife's combined net worth was greater than 11 million dollars. Unlike the majority of Americans who were suffering financially due to job losses from draconian shutdowns over the course of the pandemic, Fauci was seeing a windfall. At the time of his lucrative retirement, he was the highest paid federal employee, pulling in a salary of $480,654. During the pandemic years, said Open the Book CEO, the Faucis became decade, um, no, deca millionaires with their household net worth exceeding 10 million dollars. Last year was a tough year for the markets. However, Fauci's net worth is still up sharply from 7.6 million in 2019. Last year Fauci admitted that he knew there would be collateral negative consequence to the economy from the draconian measures he had insisted upon. Hey, you're listening to the Georgine Rice show quick break and we'll be back to wrap things up.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Ninth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals granted an injunction against a California law targeting gun marketing. Daily border numbers are at a near all time high. The Biden administration is separating families at the border. The media just shrugs this time around. Hundreds of climate activists shut down the Federal Reserve building entrance. And Ministry of Truth, George Soros, poured $14.8 million into the leftist vendetta against so-called disinformation. Tim Ballard has resigned from his anti-trafficking organization over, or rather after, sexual harassment allegations. And China flies more than 150 military planes toward Taiwan as the island condemns military harassment. President Biden's border invasion update, unlike Joe Biden's delusional claims, climate change is not the biggest existential crisis facing America. Rather, the true crisis is one of his own making. The invasion of uh, men, women and children streaming across the southern border. That invasion is getting worse as 7,500 migrants uh, were apprehended illegally crossing this past Sunday. Ten thousand a day just this week. Dealing with this massive number of uh, Migrants. The administration has been separating migrant families, a policy about which Democrats and their left media cohorts are suddenly mum despite blasting Donald Trump. This influx has a growing number of sanctuary Democrats crying no more migrants in our cities. But the administration is not listening. In fact, Biden is extending legal status to 470,000 Venezuelans and his administration admits to having cut down razor wire in the Texas border meant to stop illegal crossing. Of course, strategically, the the administration wants to keep Texas wide open in an effort to turn the state blue. Underscoring this reality, images have leaked, revealing the administration's planned ICE ID cards for illegal immigrants. In light of all this, 25 governors sent a letter to the president demanding transparency on the scope of the border malfeasance. Meanwhile, House Republicans are seeking to put a price tag on. On the financial costs of the open border. The question is how long before this invasion eventually backfires, costing both Biden and the Democrats. President Biden's uh, rewarding bad intel leaders on Monday, DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas included former CIA director John Brennan, former CIA officer Paul Colby and former uh, director of national intelligence James Clapper in a list of 17 individuals appointed to his homeland intelligence experts group. This group will provide advice and perspectives on intelligence and national security efforts and will focus on foreign national state adversaries, domestic violent extremists, cyber criminals, notably Brennan, Colby and Clapper, all signed the infamous letter in 2020, falsely claiming that Hunter Biden's laptop was Russian disinformation, their discernment and judgment being called into question. They signed the letter even after independent Cybersecurity experts had authenticated its veracity. They went to bat for Joe Biden, countervailing the evidence, and now they're being rewarded for peddling disinformation to the American public. A federal judge has blocked California Governor Newsom's anti-parent policy. The vast majority of Californians, 84 percent, believe that parents have rights, uh, have the right to be notified by schools if their child expresses gender Bending ideology, irrespective of the majority opinion, the governor, Newsom, has actively acted against parents' wishes and has sought to crack down on school districts that adopt parental notification policies. Well, a federal judge blocked Newsom's effort to keep parents in the dark. U.S. District Judge Roger Benitez ruled against Newsom, finding that Golden State governor's policy violates parents' constitutional rights. He said, um, stated rather a parent's right to make decisions concerning the care, custody, control and medical care of their children is one of the oldest of the fundamental liberty interests that Americans enjoy. And therefore, any effort to prevent them from doing so is a violation of their rights. The state does not have the right to indoctrinate children against their parents wishes. I just have to pause for a moment. That's such a refreshing statement made by the judge. In other news, GOP lawmakers came out against further Ukraine aid as Zelensky arrives in Washington, D.C. The Treasury Department released net zero principles to guide financial firms on climate commitments and a poll. Americans trust in political system is at an all new low. Rupert Murdoch has stepped down as chairman of Fox and the News Corporation. He'll be uh, still around, but in a different capacity. Disney is doubling its investment in parks after narrowing its lawsuit against DeSantis. Well, on this day in history, 1893, one of America's first horseless carriages is taken for a short test drive in Springfield, Massachusetts, by Frank Duria, who had um, designed the vehicle with his brother, Charles. 1938, a hurricane strikes part of New York and New England, causing widespread damage and claiming some 700 lives. 1970, NFL Monday Night Football makes its debut on ABC as the Cleveland Browns defeat the New York Jets, 31-21. to, 30, to 21. 1981, the Senate unanimously confirms the nomination of Sandra Day O'Connor to become the first female justice on the Supreme Court. 1985, on this day in history, in, New, in North Korea and South Korea, family members separated for decades are allowed to visit each other as both countries open their borders in an unprecedented family reunion program. 1987, NFL players call a strike, mainly over the issue of free agency. The 24-day walkout prompts football owners to hire replacement players. 1989, Hurricane Hugo crashes into Charleston, South Carolina. The storm is blamed for 56 deaths in the Caribbean and 29 in the United States. On this day in history, 1996, President Bill Clinton signs the Defense of Marriage Act, Denying federal recognition of same-sex marriages a day after saying the law should not be used as an excuse for discrimination, violence, or intimidation against gays and lesbians. Although never formally replaced, DOMA would be effectively overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court decision in 2013 and 2015. 2008, baseball says farewell to the original Yankee Stadium as the Bronx Bombers defeat the Baltimore Orioles 70-3. At 7 to 3, not 70 to 3. 2009, record flooding hits the Atlanta area, leaving neighborhoods, schools, and even sections of roller coasters submerged in several feet of water. 2014, thousands of demonstrators fill the streets of Manhattan and cities around the world to urge policymakers to take action on climate change. And finally, on This Day in History, 2017, Facebook says it would provide congressional investigators with the content of 30 uh, rather 3000 ads that had been bought by a Russian agency that had already released the ads to federal authorities investigating Russian interference in the U S presidential election. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show. I want to thank James blend for producing Dave. Well, I guess he's also engineering. James has done it all. He's quite a guy. And also uh, Sam Moppen will be um, engineering a portion of today's program as well. Have a great weekend and good night. Thanks for
1: listening to the Georgine Rice show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J.
0: Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency. Knew all the government's